No, I always felt that it could be resolved that she would have to be somewhere, that she couldn't have just disappeared like that. And the fact that it was said that she'd jumped from the bridge, that wasn't convincing for me. So I, I just thought, well, she has to be somewhere. She can't just have disappeared. In a lot of television crime shows, a forensic team analyzes evidence from a crime scene and then a computer magically spits out the name of a killer. A real-life murder investigation is very different. It's important to remember that when the Phillip Island murder occurred in 1986, a lot of the forensic science we use today wasn't available. At the time, there was no DNA analysis. But investigators did test for fingerprints and fibres, analyse blood groupings, and take photographs and records of the crime scene. Evidence was taken from the home of Beth Barnard, as well as from the home of Vivian and Fergus Cameron, and from the Cameron's Land Cruiser. The samples collected have since been analysed for DNA. In this episode, we will hear exactly what the scientific analysis of the crime scene showed, and how some of it doesn't fit with the story. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. On the 24th of October, a week after the memorial service and four weeks after Beth Barnard's murder, Dr Bentley Atchison received two further bags of evidence for forensic testing. It was the last of the evidence that he had to analyse. Dr Atchison was a forensic officer at the State Forensic Science Laboratory in the aptly named Forensic Drive in the northeastern suburb of McLeod. It was his job to examine each item in the four bags of evidence that he'd received from the police investigators. When crime scene examiners find what looks like blood, splattered or smeared at a crime scene, they collect a swab and it's usually labelled brown matter. Sometimes this turns out to be blood and sometimes it doesn't. Back in 1992, when we interviewed him, Dr. Bentley Atchison explained the process to us. When he received a piece of evidence labelled brown matter, 
and marked with the location where it was found, here's what happened in the lab. The brown matter, that you would go straight for testing whether it's human blood. With brown matter, that would go straight for testing, whether that's human blood, and that's done in one test for antibodies. If that turns out to be positive, then you go ahead and try and group it. You might go straight to the PGM type. In those days, we're doing an ABO grouping, which is group A and group B, and the phosphoglucomutase, which was the enzyme found in blood. Each one of those systems is unique and independent of each other. So you can say that's found in one of three of the population and that's found in one and two. You multiply the probabilities together and combine frequencies, which gives you how frequent it is in the population. Now, they've advanced a little bit further than that. They are subtyping the PGM system. So instead of having three possible types, they now have about 10 times. Since three different blood types were found in the evidence samples, it made it easy to see who bled where. DNA testing would later confirm this, but from the moment the samples were analysed, investigators knew the likely source for most of them. While Fergus and Beth both had type O blood, they had different phosphoglucomutase, or PGM, subgroupings. Fergus Cameron's blood type was type O PGM21, Beth Barnard was type O PGM1, and according to hospital records from when she'd given birth to her children, Vivian Cameron was type A. So if Bentley Atchison was given the scenario of movements, then this might have been the story he was told. The narrative began with Vivian attacking Fergus with a wine glass. Dr Atchison may even have had access to Fergus Cameron's statement. I turned my back away from her and she hit me two or three times with a broken glass. At this stage, I was standing between the dining room and a hallway in the doorway itself. I turned and walked to the bedroom at the top of the house and sat on the bed. Vivian was still following me and in the bedroom was pushing me. She was screaming out things including, I knew what was going on. I've been watching the number of hours you've been working. I suppose everyone out there knew what was going on. She said a lot of other things, but I can't remember what they were. Her rage would have lasted no longer than a minute and a half and quickly changed to concern as there was blood everywhere and she wanted to take me to the hospital immediately. If these movements became Dr Atchison's hypothesis, his findings proved some parts of it and challenged others. Fergus Cameron's blood type, O, PGM21, was found on item 29, the pink tissue, found in the Cameron's bathroom. Fergus's blood type, O, PGM21, was also found on the blue shirt collected from the Cameron's laundry basket. In his notes, Dr Atchison made a sketch of the shirt The front sketch of the shirt indicated blood on the left-hand side of the collar, which corresponded with the way his left ear would have bled. There is blood on the left sleeve of the shirt, as you might expect, and blood down the front left panel of the shirt. Atchison tested a sample of the blood from the collar and found this to be type O, PGM21, Fergus's blood type. There is also blood down the front right-hand side of the shirt, 
starting at above the right-hand side breast pocket and continuing all the way down to the bottom of the shirt. It's not clear which wounds would have caused this blood staining. After testing a sample from beneath the breast pocket, Dr Atchison found it was type O blood, but he couldn't get a PGM subgroup. On the back of the shirt, Dr Atchison found three cuts corresponding to the three small cut wounds in Fergus Cameron's back. The position of the cuts on the shirt in Dr Atchison's sketch indicate the cuts are more toward the centre of the shirt, while photographs of Fergus Cameron's injuries show them to be in the centre of his left shoulder blade area. Did that mean the shirt was pulled to the left during the attack? Or was Fergus twisting to get away from the wine glass assault? The back of the shirt was heavily stained with blood, radiating from the three injuries. Dr Atchison tested a sample from the centre of the stain. Like the sample he tested from the front right-hand panel, he found type O blood, but he couldn't get a PGM subgroup. I don't know how common it is in testing to get an ABO blood type and no PGM subgroup. This kind of testing is so outdated now that we have DNA analysis. What we do know in this case is that type O blood that couldn't be subgrouped was found on item 5, the wooden handled knife next to the body, item 26, brown matter labelled wall, which was a sample taken from the Cameron's hallway, and item 34, the pink shirt that Beth was wearing when she was murdered. The only other item in the evidence that had Fergus Cameron's blood type, O, PGM21, was item 48, a pullover labelled Cherry Lane. The pullover also tested positive for A-type blood. In its description in the scientific notes, the Cherry Lane pullover was described as good condition, round neck, small hole right sleeve, holes under armpits. There are two of Vivian Cameron's type A stains on it, one under the neck area and one on the left sleeve. Four other smears on the back, front and sleeve of the pullover tested at type O and three of the four could be subgrouped to PGM21, Fergus Cameron's blood type. Item 48, the Cherry Lane pullover, is listed in later notes as being found behind bedroom door at Cameron's, which perhaps means behind their bedroom door rather than any other bedrooms in the house. There is nothing in Fergus Cameron's statement to explain how type O PGM21 and type A blood might have appeared together on that piece of clothing. Perhaps the biggest challenge to the scientific hypothesis came from the blood placement. According to Fergus, Vivian attacked him and he walked into the spare room and sat on the bed. It followed then that the blood on the floor of the spare room and on the bed would be his O-type blood. But it wasn't. It was Vivian's A-type blood. But when did this happen? Fergus said Vivian wasn't bleeding. Vivian was not injured at all, and at no time was she struck. In their statements, Marnie and Ian Cairns both mentioned the blood as being there when they went to mind the children on Monday night around 10.15pm 
when Vivian and Fergus went to the hospital. Marnie said, I went into the toilet and noticed a pile of blood-soaked clothing consisting of a singlet, T-shirt, a pale blue shirt from the Penguin Parade, a face washer and a towel. There were also some tissues in the basin which had blood on them. Ian arrived shortly after and I showed him the clothing. He suggested that we leave it where it was and not touch it. I had a look around the house and saw blood on the bed in the spare room and also on the bench in the kitchen. Ian said, There are a number of signs of a struggle which included the heater in the family room being tipped up, drops of blood on the kitchen bench, broken glass near the auto tray in the dining room, papers in the study in disarray and further evidence of blood. I noticed that there was a singlet and shirt covered in blood in a corner in the bathroom. So if Marnie and Ian assumed that all the blood they saw when they came to mind the children had come from Fergus's injuries, this wasn't the case. Dr Bentley Atchison found Vivian's blood type, type A, on the following items. Item 1 and 2, brown matter. These were the two droplets of blood on the path outside Beth Barnard's back door. Item 13, a maroon towel found in Beth's bathroom. Item 15, one of the cigarette packets and matchbox from the Land Cruiser. Item 16, a face washer found in the Land Cruiser. Item 24, brown matter from the chest of drawers in the Cameron's spare bedroom. Item 27, a wet sponge from the Cameron's kitchen sink. Item 28, brown matter from the Cameron's bathroom floor. Item 30, brown matter from laundry. Item 47, a pale blue pullover labelled La Chic. Item 48, the blue pullover labelled Cherry Lane, the one that had type O PGM21 blood on it also. Item 49, a blue skivvy. Item 50, a yellow pullover. And item 51, a green pullover. In the 1993 re-examination of the evidence, Vivian's sister Deirdre and her mother Marjorie both gave blood samples for testing. Because the scientists did not have Vivian's DNA, the closest their findings could get was that she couldn't be ruled out, or as the scientists say, the result would exclude more than 99.99% of the population as possible donors of the bloodstains on. And then the report listed the items that had type A blood on them and concluded that the results of these bloodstains and particulate matter is approximately one and a half thousand times more likely if the stains and particulate matter originated from a child of the parents of the missing person, Vivian Cameron, than if the stains and particulate matter originated from a person at random. In her statement, Marnie mentions blood on a face washer and towel in the Cameron bathroom. But the only face washer to be collected in evidence was the face washer found in the Land Cruiser. It had blood on it in a couple of spots, but the blood was Vivian's, type A. 
The only towel to be collected into evidence was taken from Beth's bathroom and again it had spots of Taipei blood on it. According to Dr. Atchison's sketch, there wasn't a lot of blood on the towel and it was maroon. If this is the towel Marnie saw earlier, one would imagine the blood would have been difficult to see given the similarities in colour. The maroon towel and the brown face washer were both a Maya heritage brand. If these were the same towel and face washer later found in Beth's bathroom and the Land Cruiser respectively, did that mean Vivian Cameron took a towel and face washer with her when she set off on her murderous encounter? As well as testing many of the items for blood types, Dr. Atchison also tested the samples collected at the post-mortem examination. The internal and external vaginal swabs tested positive for the presence of spermatosa. I remember asking Dr. Atchison about this back in our 1992 interview, and he said that with normal showering, the presence of external spermatosa days after sexual intercourse was less common. Vaginal external, that's a bit vague. That would have come from a pathologist. Vaginal external, I would take to mean vulval, um, and that's normally washed off in the shower or bath or something. I'd be surprised if it was found still there after two days. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Fergus Cameron admitted to having sexual intercourse with Beth on the Sunday night, but not the Monday night. I left Beth's place at about five minutes past nine that night, and we did not make love at all, but we did kiss and cuddle and exchange affectionate words, and I departed. I said that we didn't make love that night, which is true, but we did the previous evening, being Sunday, when I visited her. This took place in her bed in her bedroom, which is at the rear of the house. The presence of spermatosa in the external swab always left the question, did Beth have a sexual encounter with someone else? Other men were interested in her, some actively pursuing her, and because her relationship with Fergus Cameron was largely secret, could Beth have found another sexual partner? I put this question to homicide detective Rory O'Connor when I was originally researching the book. Did they look elsewhere for another man? We tried to look into that too, but it was, uh, you know, like, it was, it's like thumping your head on a brick wall. Who's going to, you know, stick their hand up now? I mean, we spoke to all the boyfriends, etc., and uh, none of them had uh, 
you know, so well, one of them was so he just wouldn't believe us that uh, you know Beth had had sex with Fergus, you know, because that was just too far fetched. It was just a fantasy, you know. But uh, no, we could never find anyone that uh, you know that may have been with. Well, that's right. Who was it? Yeah, exactly. You know, was it Fergus? We have these uh, we have these questions that we are uh, that are still unanswered too. But uh, I mean, some, until you talk to um, uh, Vivian, there's no way known that she'll answer a lot of these things. Ironically, it was the DNA testing done in November 1993, about six months after our book first came out, that answered this question. A paragraph of the DNA report findings reads, This result would exclude more than 99.98% of the population as possible donors of the seminal material on the swabs labelled 37A, vaginal internal, and 37B, vaginal external, respectively. DNA of the blood sample in the bag labelled Cameron 997-867 is not excluded as being the source of the seminal material. That's the scientific way of saying that it is likely that the seminal material did in fact come from Fergus Cameron. So the next test to the hypothesis was... Was the knife found next to the body the murder weapon? It's an important question because although Dr. Atchison only found O-type blood on it during the original tests back in 1986, the PGM subgrouping could not be determined. In the 1993 DNA testing, the knife would be reported in the media as having Vivian Cameron's DNA on it. Here's what the report actually said. The simplest explanation for these results is that the stain contained biological matter from the deceased, Barnard, together with biological material from another individual. The report lists the DNA breakdowns for Barnard and the other individual. On the following page in the notes is a hand-drawn flowchart that suggests the likelihood that the other individual DNA profile was similar to that of Vivian Cameron. But of course, any connection with the knife and Vivian is dependent on the knife being found next to the body as being the murder weapon. While it certainly was the right shape and length to have caused the stab wounds to Beth, Dr Atchison could not say for certain that it was the knife that killed her. When Dr Atchison examined the pink T-shirt that Beth had been wearing in the attack, he noticed something strange about the cuts in the fabric that corresponded to the stab wounds. There were seven cuts in the pink shirt, six in the front and one in the back. But each of these cuts consists of a bigger cut, then a gap, then a little cut. Dr Atchison imagined a knife that had a shorter blade or edge near the handle that would make this type of double cut. As far as I recall, I had trouble saying that knife would cause that sort of hole. Dr Atchison discussed this with his colleagues. I asked the experts out there. They didn't really know. They thought it might be a fishing knife. The type of knife Dr Atchison was imagining was one with a long blade and then a shorter blade or a hook. When he was describing it to me, 
I immediately pictured a can opener type edge on a knife that would create this kind of effect. You can start thinking of all sorts of knives, so they penetrate and make two. Other people with far more experience in cuts than I am said you can get a hit with a knife and then another sort of jab in a frenzy sort of thing and that the knife follows the penetration that far. Then it's pulled out and quickly jabbed in up to there. It really didn't go anywhere. Dr Atchison also found two cuts in item eight, the blanket on Beth's bed, but he doesn't indicate if they were double cuts as well. On the sketch diagram in his notes, he marked the bloodstains up the end of the blanket that if pulled up to cover her, would have been over her chest. Atchison noted the blanket was cut in two sections, four centimetres total. Did that suggest the initial attack took place while Beth was lying flat in bed and she was stabbed through the blanket? And if this was the case... How does that help us recreate the scene? The floral sheet underneath the blanket was stained with blood in the area roughly corresponding to where Beth's chest would have lain in the bed. It looked like the first blows may have been to the chest and Beth had woken up, grabbing at the knife or her wounds, then reacting wildly, clawing at the sheet and the wall as she struggled. This is where she left blood. We know Beth ended up on the floor, so she must have been dragged or fallen out of bed in the struggle. This would have dislodged the blanket and left it hanging over the side of the bed. But in the crime scene photos, it is pulled up, largely covering the sheet underneath. This can't have been its position if Beth was attacked in bed. So if this is where the initial attack did take place, it means the killer must have rearranged the blanket. Why? We will never know. Predictably, Beth's blood was found on the pink T-shirt, which she was wearing when she died. There's something really interesting in the crime scene photos. There's a small fold of fabric in the pink T-shirt Beth is wearing that doesn't have blood on it. While the rest of it is saturated in deep red, a small fold of pink really stands out. This fold lies on the floor on her right side, directly underneath where she would have bled from the A carved into her stomach. The lack of blood hopefully suggests she wasn't alive when it happened. The blood samples tested from Beth's pink T-shirt came back as type O with no PGM subgroupings. There was a heavy patch of staining on the front of her underpants just beneath the elastic waistband. There's no obvious corresponding wound and it's never been obvious how this occurred. When I first discussed this many years ago with Dr David Ranson, I postulated that perhaps in her final moments, Beth hunched forward, trying to breathe, pushing down against her thighs like you do when you're gasping for air after a run. I thought this might also have accounted for the hand mark smears. In the crime scene photos, on the floor next to Beth's bed, are a pair of jeans with what looks like a similar triangle of blood-soaked fabric. But while the staining is similar in intensity, 
any chance that Beth could have actually been wearing those jeans during the attack was put to rest when Dr. Atchison examined them and found the heavy blood staining was over the left back pocket, not the front. So while the stains were of similar intensity, they weren't in a similar position. As for the hand mark smears over her arms and thighs, we will never know if Beth did them herself or if her killer did. After such a brutal attack and so much bleeding, it's strange that Beth's blood wasn't found anywhere else except on the piece of paper on the Cameron's spare bed. There was blood found on a tap in Beth's bathroom. Testing showed it to be human, but the type unknown. It begs the question, if Vivian did kill Beth and ended up covered in blood, could she have washed up so thoroughly and left not one trace of Beth's blood in the bathroom and then not one trace of Beth's blood in the Land Cruiser? In other tests, Dr Atchison found blood in the containers labelled Barnard Nail Scrapings left hand and Barnard Nail Scrapings right hand, but he noted that it was insufficient to determine the species from which it originated. Sometimes a killer's DNA can be found under the fingernails of the victim, but not in this case. Testing revealed no blood group substances on the cigarette butts. The butt in the bathroom, which looked like a contemplative cigarette after the murder, wasn't the brand smoked by Vivian Cameron. It's hard to think she could have smoked it without getting some trace evidence on it. The ones in the kitchen on the counter near the phone were Vivian's brand, but again, no trace evidence was found. Since the knife found next to Beth's body and the maroon towel found in Beth's bathroom both had Vivian's blood type on them, the only non-transportable item at the crime scene that tested as A-type blood were the two drops on the path outside Beth's back door. I asked homicide detective Rory O'Connor if the evidence could have been planted. His look was sceptical, his tone a little scathing when he said, You think people go around planting evidence and setting up crime scenes? It was on the tip of my tongue to say only in every crime movie and every Agatha Christie novel in ever, but I didn't because in his real world of policing, clearly this didn't happen. Real life isn't like TV. In February 2005, the Phillip Island case was featured on an episode of Sensing Murder called The Scarlet Letter. The format of the show is to examine a case that doesn't have answers and use psychics to see if they can shed any light on the crime. I thought the Phillip Island case would be perfect for this. The first thing two of the psychics picked up was that Beth was in fear of her dog as she was being murdered. With or without the benefit of psychics, it's easy to picture Beth's minty, heavily pregnant with her pups, trying to come to Beth's aid as she was being attacked. It makes you wonder if the killer kicked out at the dog or threatened it. Each of the three psychics in this show felt an element of setup or staging. But police work on hard evidence, not on psychic revelation. So even though one of the psychics claimed to have seen Vivian's death, 
the Homicide Squad are not interested. The only thing that would interest them would be if Vivian Cameron turned up somewhere alive or if her body was located or if an eyewitness came forward with an alternative story. They are absolutely not interested in theories. Rory O'Connor explains that that's why there's still an arrest warrant out for Vivian Cameron. These things, all these things, you know, could be could be done. So that's why there's only a warrant out for her. We've never got Vivian saying, I did it. All you can do is go by the evidence that you've got at that particular time. Now, you can point at a lot of other different people and say, yes, he could have done it. Yes, he could have done it. He could have done it. At this stage, all evidence that we've got at the moment points to Vivian. And nobody can clear that one up because we can't talk to Vivian. I asked Dr Atchison if he could see any evidence that linked Vivian Cameron to the crime. The only thing really really is that someone else has bled at the crime scene. There's Group A blood at the crime scene. So the investigation could only go so far before the forensic evidence came back. It wasn't handed over to forensic science till mid-October 1986 and Dr Atchison's final report is dated the 10th of February 1987. Rory O'Connor explained the wait. We had local police talking to local people that they knew. We interviewed family members, um, all those involved, uh, one by one, and uh, not with anyone else present. So they they gave the actual statements, but um, a lot of them were, a lot of the things they said, you know, was. Uh, we believed that, you know, it may not have happened that way, but um, that was they were actually uh, making suppositions about what had happened at times. And uh, that's why, you know, we had to wait until we got the, the reports, especially from the forensic people. So as the scientific anomalies came to light, what did the police do with the parts of the information that didn't match the family's statements? You go, well, you actually do go and speak to Fergus. Now, the blood was enough for Vivian to be worried that it was, she's done some damage because it was a broken glass. So he's, he has bled. And she's, if she's cut herself, she's cut herself during the actual thing. Now, whose blood was when and why? You know what I mean? It's uh, We still know that they were both, you know, he's got the scar on his back. We've seen, you know, we saw it straight away. The supposition is that she's cut herself too because the glass is broken and she's got it in her hands. But again, Fergus himself said Vivian wasn't injured. Vivian was not injured at all and at no time was she struck. And remember that none of the hospital staff saw any injuries on Vivian Cameron which means that the presence of Vivian's blood type on so many items seen as early as 10.15pm on the night of Monday the 22nd of September has never been explained. A final question about the crime scene. Many have questioned whether a woman could be capable of such brutality. Women killing women as a crime is rare. Could a woman have committed this crime? 
Homicide detective Rory O'Connor thinks yes. The only struggle that really you saw was the, the way her fingers were carved when she was trying to defend herself. So that's, uh, but that's, you know, depending on whether she went over straight away and, and, the, other, and the other persons had the advantage right from the start. But um, there was a fair few cuts on her fingers, so it's not as if it's happened, you know, within, you know, 10 seconds or anything like that. After the scientific evidence came back, the homicide detectives completed their brief for the coroner. Once the evidence was presented, it would be in the coroner's hands after that. Rory O'Connor spoke about that in our original interview. Well, I suppose it's our nature to be suspicious. We've always got to be suspicious. Of, uh, you know, we've got, a, we've got a dead person there that we haven't got an offender for, we haven't even spoken to. Now, she might come up and say, Beth attacked me with a knife. You know, and all the acts that I did after that, um, I just uh, went crazy. But, I mean, there's always two stories, isn't it? Now, all we've got at this stage is one story. I mean, every time a person gets slaughtered and a person, another person says it's an accident and when they go through the legal system and yet and the jury find them not guilty, you've still only heard one side, haven't you? You've never heard the other person's side of it, so they can say anything they like regarding... Or you can find anything you like if, prior to talking to that person. If you never talk to them, you'll never get the other side, will you? So, I mean, everything we presented to the coroner is just what we found and it was all um, uh, going against Vivian. But we've never spoken to the woman. We've never had a chance to talk to the woman. Now, there might be a thousand reasons. It might have been, it could have come down as manslaughter. It could have come down as accident. Writing about an unrelated case, American crime writer Thomas French wrote, One of the most terrible things about an unsolved murder is the taint of uncertainty it casts on everyone around it. If one person in our midst is capable of violently taking someone's life, then any of us may be capable and may be scrutinised with that possibility in mind. Suddenly the most innocent actions may be viewed in the most sinister light. French is absolutely right. While Beth Barnard's murder was about to get a legal conclusion... Homicide detective Rory O'Connor still to this day maintains that unless Vivian Cameron magically reappears, we will never know for certain what happened on the night of the 22nd of September, 1986. But at this particular stage and the evidence that we have and the evidence that we've still got regarding blood and everything else, we know that Vivian was there and she had a a pretty good motive to do what she did. And the coroner agreed. On the 20th of August 1987, an inquest was held into the death of Elizabeth Catherine Barnard at Corumburra. Coroner Mr B. Ma found that the identity of the deceased was Elizabeth Catherine Barnard and that the death occurred on or about 23rd September 1986 at McPhee's Road Rill in the following circumstances. The deceased was located at her residence in McPhee's Road Rill with extensive injuries to her body. Such injuries were caused by knife wounds and were inflicted by another person. And I further find that Vivian Cameron contributed to the cause of death. 
contributed to the cause of death is as close as a coronial finding will go to laying blame. But the inference is clear. Vivian did it. Glenda Frost had given evidence at Beth's inquest, but with the finding, she wondered if her phone call with Vivian was taken into account at all. All doubt was removed when Vivian's case went to inquest just 11 months later. On the balance of evidence, men who didn't know Glenda Frost and didn't know Vivian Cameron would decide that that phone call never happened. On the next episode of The Vanishing of Vivian Cameron. A frenzied killing like that is what we'd expect of a woman who just had her whole life caving on her. A year after the inquest for Vivian Cameron, there was another attack on a woman on Phillip Island. Yeah, there's a lot of findings that uh, are altered later on, but uh, that was his finding from the evidence that we had at that particular stage. 